in my day, if you had a friend who was half Pakistani, you could put a turban on him, have someone jump out with a ram horn, blow it, and he could come out with a cape and his turban, and people would cheer. <laughs> I love to see your body. I assume this is very dark in here. Can I continue to sing Bush really quick? Yeah, please keep going. Oh, you got to hydrate. Okay. Uh, no. What is Machine Head about? The music video was all about a, a, a motorcycle. Huh, I don't know. What'd you hear? Something about sex, but I don't remember what. I mean, but like oh, when you're um, 13, everything's about sex. Even though you barely under- understand how it works. And to be honest, the actual act of it like would repulse you. Uh, this song was inspired by a line in the poem Howl by Allen Ginsberg. Oh, okay, okay. M- Machine says, I saw the best minds of my generation. Bush singer Gavin Rossdale is a big fan of Ginsberg. The Everything Zen lyric, Rain Dogs Howl for the Centuries, a reference to the Ginsberg poem. Huh. When he spoke with Song Facts in 2017, he said... I like that sort of Ginsbergy stream of consciousness approach to words rather than say country songwriting where there are narratives and stories and places and names. And the stuff actually makes sense and has a point. It's really funny when you break down the lyrics, Rossdale said. Got a machine head, better than the rest, green to red, machine head. The idea of machine head always was about freeing yourself, about losing your ego and just letting rip. I remember writing the riff and walking around Hyde Park in England thinking, I've got something good. I better not screw it up with the lyric. You know what's funny? I've, I mean, no joke. I've probably heard that song a thousand times over the past 25 years. And I've never had that experience of losing myself or something like that. And it's just like, never once. Whoa, 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 whoa. Oh, oh, there went my ego. Oh, my gosh. I just, I was one with the universe. And Sakarma came and got me. No, that's never happened. Thank God from green to red. I, when I heard that lyric, uh, immediately lost all sense of self and slipped into cosmic consciousness. Thank you, Bush. Thank you, Bush. I would, you know, if, if they were to do... If Bush were to do a coffee house tour where they just played acoustic songs off of what it's uh, that album is called 16 Stones, I believe. I think so. I think it's 16 Stones. Stone. Yeah. Whatever. Uh, if they were. I mean, sorry. Uh, that. that. Oh, it's not against you. If they were to do a coffee house tour and they're just playing that album and they're not preaching at all and it's like acoustic, it's, you know, and it's not some weird like whatever thing i would pay a hundred dollars to go and be in that audience to see that gavin rosdale told entertainment weekly i've always sung it as a as a sense of survival and triumph that sort of maverick spirit and energy and refusal to be compromised the 90s like every time i miss the 90s i hear a thing like (laughs) that and then i then i go oh that's right it was exhausting and annoying (laughs) yeah nope 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 Every artist was so pure. Like, it should have surprised no one that the very next step was Limp Biscuit. Like, sh- no <laughs> one should have been surprised that that's where he was going. Oh, man. Speaking of Limp Biscuit, I'm going to send you a picture right now in the, uh, in the uh, IM. This is a picture of me, my brother Brian, and my brother Chris with their three oldest boys. Okay, did you get it? Is that, wait, is that on, on Messenger? No, I just, 
No, no, no. Uh, yeah, on on your phone, Apple Message. Yeah, let message. me pull it up on my, on my computer. Oh, good. At least I have an old Mac that's very, very slow. <laughs> Look at Chris with his hand on top of Drew. That's awesome. Drew is getting married. Look at him and think Fred Durst. Yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. He has a little, like, that starts out with, with like, a... Uh, he has a sideburn. He gets really big at the bottom. It gets real thin. Do we go? Yeah, yeah. To, oh, yeah. Chris, goatee, shaved I head. I love Chris. Uh, undershirt underneath the t-shirt. I'm wearing a light <laughs> shirt and a Francis cross. Like, um, when was that taken? Oh, I don't. I don't know. My brother Brian, as always, athletic shirt tucked <laughs> I in. I feel like you, I haven't seen your brother Brian in ten years since your wedding. But I want to say he looked exactly the same as he did. Yeah, like yeah, no, he, he just, doesn't age. Anything I've ever seen him, he, he looks like that. Yeah, he doesn't age. He just gets more back hair. <laughs> One day we were swimming in the hotel pool in Salina, Kansas, and he goes, I was like, holy moly, Brian, I, uh, this is a swimming pool. I didn't realize you wore your sweater into the pool. And he's like, very funny. I'm 10 years older than you. It'll happen to you. And I was like, no, it won't. <laughs> And meanwhile, yesterday, I chopped out with a pair of tiny scissors the biggest <laughs> hair my ears have ever given birth to. The lady, one day, she was cutting my hair, and she's, uh, she's talking with a woman who she's training. And she says, you know what I like to do? I, just, I don't even ask the men. I just run a comb through their eyebrows and zip, especially the older men, because they're so embarrassed. They never ask. But let's be honest. They need to get them eyebrows under control. She goes, and then anyone over the age of 30, I just take the clippers and go zip right in each ear. Because they don't want to admit it to themselves, but they have ear hair. And I was like, I don't have ear hair. And she's like, son, you have ear hair. And I was like, ah, 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 everything I knew is wrong. <laughs> I'm dead inside. Youth is fleeting. Ooh, Apple. Oh, I just noticed it changed in um, iMessage uh, on Apple. That's cool. On my computer. Interesting. All right. Sorry. Um, I've got some topics. I have a topic. You have a topic. Can I give you some updates about my life real quick? Oh. <laughs> Can I just tell everyone what it's like to be in a group chat with with you? Yes. It's it's exactly what you think it would be. I believe we talked about the whole uh, birthday thing on when it was my birthday to everyone. I was wishing me happy birthday. All and all uh, all um, you could talk about was your Roth IRAs and stuff. Because I just set them up. <laughs> I was so excited. <laughs> and I planned to call you. That was my bet. <laughs> Try to imagine this is how it works with Gomer. Someone someone um sends a message, you have like a one word of response that immediately changes the topic into whatever you're talking to whatever's going on for you in that moment. Yeah, that's pretty much it. It's amazing. That's pretty much it. It's amazing <laughs> without fail every time. <laughs> Whoopsie. <laughs> it's almost no, like it's I have adult ADD. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's just funny because and I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to crap on you. It's just funny because all of a sudden, then the like the conversation grows ex exponentially because now it's about whatever like me, like I or whoever said first, and then your thing, and then I probably add a thing, you know, and then it just like and then it like oh morphs in, in, into this. Everyone has to respond with like five different things yeah. to the five different conversations yeah, that's cool. going on. Peace, brother. Uh, happy birthday. Uh, oh, that's wow. really sad. We should pray for him. Yeah. <laughs> stacks on stacks on stacks. <laughs> And it's there's it's four of us. It's four. And we of still us. can't manage the conversation. 
<laughs> it's like we all kind of have these egos that just refuse to die. <laughs> oh, that's funny. That's funny. Yeah. Uh, so the funny thing was I typed in all this stuff about my setting up my wife's spousal IRA, and I had it ready to go. And then John's like, hey, Gomer, this is the part of the conversation where you immediately say something about your finances. <laughs> so I was like, send. <laughs> Will do. And then I texted him personally. He was like, hey, happy birthday, man. <laughs> oh. oh, that's funny. Um, so can I, tell you, can I tell you some short things, quick things? Tell me some short things. Uh, on Thursday, Thursday morning, early in the a.m., I'm driving up to the old stomping grounds, Tulsa, Oklahoma. Staying there for one night and then going up to Excelsior Springs for my godson's wedding, or the first Gormley wedding. Um, Look at that. Yeah, of the, Is of that the children. this week? Yeah, it's uh, this Saturday in Kansas, or excuse me, in uh, Missouri. It's a suburb. It's a Missouri suburb of Kansas City. Missouri. Missouri. And um, yeah, it's awesome. The hotel is pet friendly, so we are taking our dog. Yeah, look at you're such a good millennial, <laughs> you and your Gen X wife. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we were like, who are we gonna get for our dog? Our dog has so much anxiety when we leave. And then I say to myself, It is heartbreaking, isn't it? Is. It is a little heartbreaking. And I'm like, did I literally just said my dog has so much anxiety when we leave? <laughs> Can I tell you have I told you the story about the first time we boarded Zara and Sienna? Uh-uh. When we went back to our this is for forty eight hours over Thanksgiving's we're going to a cabin in Kentucky. When we first got back to our apartment, I was so stressed I had to lie down. <laughs> like I was getting so anxious. I've only had the, I've only had the feeling one other time in my life, and it was when I was in the Grand Canyon, and my fear of heights just over. It was actually uh, uh, me and Aunt D, and my fear of heights over like took my body, and I could barely move. And instead, it was when we boarded our dogs, and I had to lie down. Was this? Was this? You were lying down. <laughs> I was right fine. after you boarded them, or yeah, when you got like, back from the like, trip, but before you picked twenty them? minutes. No, no, no. I I actually almost gradually got m- much better. Aaron got worse over time. <laughs> like I, I got to the point where like I could I like cared less about him. Like oh yeah, we'll go get him. I'll be I'm happy to see him. But you know who cares? This is fun. But right after we um, dropped them off, I could barely I couldn't focus on anything. That is so funny, man. No, I uh, I don't have that reaction to my dog and the thought of boarding it. But uh, it just it's so funny how much, like when I come home, I'm like, buddy, oh buddy, <laughs> I know, you can't help it. That's that's where it starts, that's man. Where it starts. That's where it starts. And I become a dog mom, and I say, I have five children, <laughs> and one's adopted a dog. Who rescued who? Huh? Who rescued who? Gosh, I hate that sticker. Oh, God, help me. Help me, help me, help me. We're all in desperate need of a savior. We're all in desperate need of affection. <laughs> I would settle for a hug. Okay, sorry. So you have a wedding. So, yeah, no, he's getting married. That's awesome. He's my godson. He was my first godson that I've ever had. So that's cool. My brother Brian's 10 years older than me. Started cranking out kids in his early 20s. So Drew is, uh, so my brother Brian's 47, and Drew just graduated from uh, Benedictine. Um and he's already going to be making more money in his starting job than uh, than me. So that's cool. <laughs> that's fine. I'm fine What's his starting job? Uh, he's like an engineer or something. Oh, well, yeah, of, of course. course. Of course. Yeah. Uh, so there's that. That's our own fault. And then the other thing, can I tell you the other thing? This is this is like eye roll time for you, Luke. You ready? Oh, can't wait to hear what other fire thing you have going on. No, no, no. It's like fire, but with food. Oh, you're, uh, yeah, the, uh, okay, so I'll, I'll let you explain it. You're con, <laughs> <Say it! laughs> uh, your carnivore diet or whatever, dude, full carnivore. How are you feeling? Uh, like a million bucks. 
All right, explain to the kids what a carnivore diet is. A carnivore diet is you only eat animals and animal products, and that's it. You don't eat anything else. You don't eat fruits. You don't eat vegetables. You don't eat fiber. You don't eat uh, processed foods. All the things that have kept people alive for the past 2,000 years? Well, 10,000 years, but before that, all of humanity ate nothing but meat. However, I, I digress in all the arguments. I'm just saying. <laughs> so if, if for a lot of people who have like autoimmune issues, gut issues, um, eating beef is like the simplest. Like your body can use almost every inch of beef if you eat it, and it does not like – Luke, this is the funniest thing. So I used to fart like crazy. And to the point where my kids are like, oh, dad stepped on another duck. And they would be like in a different room and they could hear it. It was gross. It was hilarious. It was all the things little kids need in their life. I have zero gas and I've had zero gas for nine days. Really? I have nothing. Wow. Nothing. I, I never, wow. You, I, you never feel bloated. You never feel gassy. You never feel. Do you feel tired at all? You've got plenty of energy and stuff? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I'm lifting weights now. I've never lifted weights in a consistent way in my life. And I, because here's the deal. When I would look at the weights that have been in my office since day one that I moved in here, I would look at them and be like, I should start lifting those. Now in my head, I'm like, when can I go downstairs and just take five minutes and lift weights? Like there is a a, a steady growing groundswell of energy. And then the last thing I'm going to say is my left knee. One day I woke up and it was hurting. I've talked about this before. My left knee just was hurting to the point where if I was going to do a lunge, I can't do it with my left knee in front. I can do a lunge. No problem oh, yeah. with my yeah, right yeah, knee yeah, in yeah, front. Yeah. I can yeah. do squats. No problem. But the moment all the weight is on one knee and it goes, you know, anywhere slight, you know, I'm lowering myself slightly down on that leg, uh, it, it collapse in searing pain. I would say that's in one, in a, in a one week, that's 50% gone. Wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, good for chronic, you. Chronic pain in my knee that I've had since I was 35, yet never got checked out by a doctor. The Gormley way. Yeah, I know, right? It's the Gormley way. We're all going to die early. Um, but it's, it's all that stuff is gone. Um, my, wife, uh, my wife, she had a, the same thing that Joe Rogan had when he did Carnivore. Did you hear about Joe Rogan? Uh, I haven't. Refresh, refresh my memory. He, I mean, he just did it in January. He went full Carnivore, and he had rocket butt. Where you say to yourself, mm. oh, I have to fart. Oh, my God, that's not a fart. It's a, a torrent <laughs> of liquid shooting forth from your anus. Is um, Shannon okay with you talking about this? Oh, probably not. But uh... <laughs> Shame. Shame. I'm just talking about Joe Rogan. What are you talking about? <laughs> so, I mean, I knew this was going on, but so, we, had a, we all had a conference call about yeah, it. Yeah, we did. Guys, guys. <laughs> uh, let me talk about my 401k, my wife's rocket button, seven other topics did say something in your post about a explosive diarrhea. It needs to have a new name. <laughs> diarrhea is not strong enough for what I was experiencing. For real? Yeah, it was like someone was tapping into uh, like what? an oil like an oil well. Ah, jeez. I have pictures. You want to see pictures? <laughs> so why was that happening? Um, well, I talked to Dr. Sean Baker. He wrote a book on the carnivore diet. He's a physician that's a carnivore diet advocate. He's been eating this way for two years. Two and, years. Yep. And he seems to think that it has to do with the colon adjusting to the fact your body doesn't have any dietary fiber. So you're not taking in any rice or bread or anything that's going to absorb the water. So your, right. body's like, your body's like, what do I do with all this liquid? It's oh. going out the asshole. Oh. Woo! <laughs> but How long did that last? Around two weeks. Two weeks? 
two weeks of rocket fuel coming out of your booty hole. Ah, jeez. But if you get through it, it's not normal. I was really getting excited about trying this. But here's the thing. <laughs> at the end of that, it all goes away. Right. I mean, at the end of two weeks, my body adjusted, and now it's not a problem at all. Really? Yeah, not a problem at all. No, but she, she like, we were, like, beside ourselves because we didn't know what to do. And this one guy who started, he was like, I got rock about I can't say this thing. And he's like, I ate half a cup of broccoli and it went away. So there's like a handful of types of foods, right? So you, the nuts and seeds, and then there's the nightshades. And then the easiest on the gut is like lettuce, avocado, and something else, broccoli. And so she ate half of a tiny avocado, 100% normal. Is she back now to just meat? So, I mean, we're still doing the carnivore. Yeah, we're still doing the carnivore. But she just added one night she ate it, and then the next morning she ate it perfection not a single problem so is she continuing to have it like at night and in the morning no, 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 or just, just, just all me those two times see i think i would really love this i think i would love to i love meat yeah. a lot yeah. a lot of but like having my gallbladder removed because i was an idiot for 30 years in terms of how i ate I, it just like destroys my stomach now whenever i so one of the things that they that a lot of the people talk about and again you need to talk to people not me but uh is like there was a guy that had his gallbladder removed in the in the thing and he said at, at first his, his stomach hurt but it's all the other stuff you're taking with the meat if you just like fast drink lots of water stay nice and healthy put some salt in your water and then you eat the meat and you'll take uh, – there's transition because your body is going from one thing to another. Yeah, sure. So yeah, you yeah, just yeah. allow for that transition period. But, um, yeah, it's it's kind of crazy. It's kind of crazy because I'm also only hungry like once or twice a day. Like I eat meals with my family, but it is nothing like it used to be. So in the morning I'll have eggs um, with cheese and then uh, some sort of meat along with it if it's bacon, if it's steak, if it's something like that. Um, usually I don't eat lunch. Um, sometimes I do, sometimes I don't, but, um, usually that's probably like hamburger or something along those lines. And then I'll have, uh, like a steak or something. Today we had a taco, taco seasoned, um, meat and cheese. Okay. So you are having like a little bit of uh, dairy and stuff with it. That's an animal product. And I only have, uh, cheese and, um, like very narrowly defined things, things with zero carbohydrates. So instead of calling it the carnivore diet, you could call it the zero carb diet, which is what it's been known for literally decades. But the new marketing came out of carnivore, paleo, you know, all that stuff. So carnivore is like the latest phrase. But I mean, there have been people who've been living on this. Well, I mean, most cultures for millennia lived on this style. But um, yeah, sure. so it's just funny and because it's a high fat, high protein diet similar to keto, but you eat a lot more protein so than keto. See, okay, so I actually have a little bit of an announcement about that as well. Okay. I, I might go vegan for Lent. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I. Uh, so I've just been very tired. And so, okay, so a little bit of an update. I'm not getting too graphic. I did keto uh, for a bit off and on from 2017 and 2018. Really liked it. Felt great. But then the second round of me doing it, it just, like, I was having a lot of issues, um, and it just, like, wasn't good. And so um, – and I was going to a doctor about it for a bit, and he was like, yeah, it could be – he probably thinks it's something with like, along the lines of of my gallbladder being removed and uh, diet and, you know, maybe other stuff. So I kind of stopped doing that. And um, But I'm just, like, tired a lot, and I just – because I'm just – 
all I can eat is carbs. You know, because like, like if I have t- too much fat, it just like it, I, it just upsets my stomach, and it's just it sucks. I'm so tired of it. Yeah. And so, I was in Eastern Pennsylvania for work a couple of weeks ago. I'm about to sneeze. Sorry for everyone in podcast land. That's right. I can't sneeze quietly because why do anything politely? Um, accidentally ate at a vegan place. <laughs> And I walked and I was like, I feel so good after I just felt so good. What'd you eat? After that. Um, I had like a it was their version of like a chickpea salad. But it obviously um had no chicken or or, or anything like that. And so uh and um I just I I'm not in a position right now where because I, I would love to try the uh, carnivore diet. I love I I mean I'm not kidding. I genuinely love meat. I would eat meat and cheese Every day, if I could, but it just screws me up. And I don't know if I, like, have the ability to, um, like, because I would probably go through um, what, like, Shannon had. And I don't know if I can do that. Like, the logistics of it. Shannon has difficulty with red meat, especially when it's, you know, pink inside. So she usually gets her meat well done. And a lot of people will say, like, oh, I started off and... You know, my gut just does not like red meat. Well, that's because you, you're, well, the, what they say is that your intestinal tract is geared towards fermenting grains and all the gut flora or the gut bacteria yeah. is all about that. And we overfeed that. So when meat comes in, it becomes harder for it to, to digest in general. But literally within, um, it's really cool because some of the, the medical research that they do about gut flora, and this has nothing to do with the carnivore, but you can totally change the composition of your gut in like uh, a week and sometimes as quick as two days. And so there'll be people. So Shannon took a supplement called lipase, which is a digestive enzyme to help you digest fat. And you just pop one or two pills. Um, and it just, all it is is the, your bodies naturally make this enzyme. And so it's just more of that enzyme. But um, once she added the the avocado, I think it was enough of a carbohydrate and a fat and a plant um, or a fiber that it just kind of eased the transition. Yeah, sure. And it's so fascinating because now she's eating, like I cooked her a steak yesterday, and now she's eating red meat. But she's also down like 11 pounds in a week and one day. Wow. Holy crap. That's And I know like a lot of that is water weight, but who that means her body was desperately clinging on to all this water. And she's not eating we're not like calorie deficit right now. We were a little bit, um, because we were still doing our intermittent fasting, which we're not really doing anymore. But um yeah, so I'm I'm super excited because already I've noticed the benefits and I don't have um dry skin at all. I had like super dry skin on certain spots on my on my hand. And uh, my arms, that is 100% gone. It's so bizarre. People say, like, if you have skin tags, those go away with this diet. I don't have skin tags. But, like, it's just fascinating. I just think this stuff is fascinating. So you go vegan. I'll go strict carnivore. Keep it strict. And then, I don't know, we'll, like, get in front of a gigolometer. Just talk. (laughs) Because my big thing, like, the big thing with the carnivore diet is don't care about a number on a scale. Just gauge with how you feel. Do you feel tired yeah. all the time? Yeah. Do you feel this yeah. all the time? And I'm like, well, the scale really matters to me because <laughs> I want to lose weight. <laughs> I really do. I'm so fat. It's disgusting. So, And it is disgusting. I'm at my all-time heaviest, and I thought that I wasn't. And then I actually weighed myself, and I was like, I have never seen a number that high before on my body. So uh, I started noticing. That's a depressing feeling. It is. It is. And when we That's, that's real hard. Yeah, so when we uh, were doing the whole, and thank God you found the picture of the uh, mind pump, 
um, I listened to a, a couple <laughs> of their episodes, and one of the episodes the guy said, um, he said, you know, he talked about, like, why do you need to do this for your body? You know, and he's just talking about, like, working out and what what is working out. I think he was talking, yeah, he was talking about resistance training, so weight training. And he's like, why do you do this? And he goes through, like, six different, the six reasons why. He said, but your body is so efficient that when you sit at a desk all day and you don't get up and move around, you don't do this stuff, which is me, right? My, my job is email. Um, when you're doing that all day, your body begins to tear down muscles and your bone density and even your nervous system because you don't need it. And your body is an efficiency machine. So the more lazy you get or the more sedentary you get because that's what your job is and you're working hard. Your body will start to even your nervous system compromises. So he told the story about like stretching and the guy, he's like, oh, I can't stretch this high. He's like, no, you've just never stretched that high. You can stretch that. And he grabbed his foot and stretched him out. And he's like, oh, my gosh. Okay, I can do it. And I realized like there are certain like just movements that are natural that I never do because I, everything is so sedentary. Or I'm, I, I'm walking. I'm standing and talking. I'm walking around talking or I'm sitting at a computer. Like that's my life. And because yeah, you don't have yeah. that uh, kind of ability, like, at the ready, where it feels comfortable, it causes you to feel discomfort, so then you don't want to do it, so then you don't do it, so then your body kind of loses the function. And so, right now, I'm at the uh, desperate rebuilding stage. Rebuilding stage, that's awesome. I mean, that's what I think about my body and all that stuff. So, I hate being fat. I, oh, here's another thing. My wife has uh, plantar fasciitis um, in her feet, and she has, like, special socks she wears, lotion she rubs into her feet you know when you th- you sit down and you think you're just what is that I'm, i i have never heard of that oh it's it's the the like the arch of her foot um uh the plantar you know nerve and muscles and all that stuff it just it is um, her f- dad has it and he had to get like cortisone injections right into the foot um i can't remember what they oh, did wow. for it ultimately but um so yeah so she, it just causes her severe pain and it's gotten worse these last uh, I would say the last, like, four weeks. I can't remember what we did. Mm-hmm. Oh, because we've been doing um, – uh, she has a Garmin watch, and we're doing, like, our step challenge to make sure we have enough steps in our day. So we're doing that back and forth. So I take a couple walks at work and all this stuff, and she's kind of had to stop that because it's been hurting her so much. And she lifts weights and does um, – what is it called? Body pump up at – mind pump. No, uh, body pump at the YMCA. And so all of those things combined led to it just being inflamed all the time. And – uh and so she's had socks. She, she like, broke down crying one time. It hurt so much. She does that thing where you sit down on the couch. You think you're going to enjoy a movie all nice. And then all of a sudden a foot comes in your, on your lap. And it's like, here, rub my feet. And you're like, oh. And I thought I was just going to watch The Rock and <laughs> stuff. But I, I guess we're doing this. Um, but now she's like, it is almost completely gone. And it's been, really? it's been seven days for wow. her. Like, we were talking, like, surgery. And yeah, she's healed yeah. it with... Uh, you know, red uh, ribeyes. That's great. Yeah. That's great. That's awesome. Results may vary. Please consult your physician. <laughs> uh, um, cool. Well, I'm excited to see uh, how that goes for all of, all of you. I'll let you know how the vegan stuff One goes. One more thing. You ready? Best sexual experience of our marriage. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this morning. Best sexual experience there of you our go. marriage. There you go. Bam. High fives. You did it. Yeah, just on accident. I just three minutes, three, three and a half time, three and a half. <laughs> the old hundred and fifty second hello. <laughs> Sorry, the old. <laughs> That'd be generous. two and a half minutes. 
<laughs> the old 210 and 10 second goodbye. <laughs> a good day we'll to you, ma'am. The 210 to Yuma. <laughs> the old 210 to Yuma. Oh, gosh. I better get permission for all of this. <laughs> nah, you're fine. Uh, <laughs> when has permission ever done anything for the both of us? Never. Yeah. Ask for forgiveness. Never permission. They always say yeah. no. They're sane. <laughs> <laughs> they have boundaries. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here's the deal. You ain't got no staff, no time, and certainly no budget to make creating compelling content for social media in any way a priority. So what do you do as a Catholic parish? Probably what most parishes do, and you just copy and paste things straight from your bulletin page onto your Facebook page. Man, that ain't no way to live. And yet, all the millennials, Gen Xers, and even grumpy, fussy baby boomers are online like 24-7, which means your church can be online like 24-7. And they don't just want you to have a presence online. They want it to be good, like like really, really good. That's why CatholicSocial.media exists. You subscribe to them, and they hook you up with daily social media posts that you can personalize for your parish without their, like, logo all over the stuff. You know, like when you illegally pull stuff from Google Image Search, and it has other people's logos all over everything? Not that I've ever done that. I am as pure as the morning dew. CatholicSocial.media is a Catholic company with Catholic artists, designers, writers, and videographers coming up with the very best stuff for your parish. And you can look like a genius and save time and money. Head on over right now to try.catholicsocial.com. Media. Apparently, the design nerds over there are big fans of Catching Foxes, and they created a free trial with a discount code FOXES for you just to try out their stuff and see if it's a good fit for your parish. That's a free trial with the promo code FOXES over at try.catholicsocial.media. Special thanks to catholicsocial.media for sponsoring this show. Oh, Luke. So what did, what did you want to talk about today? All right. So I want to talk a little bit about presentism we're going to do the old catching foxes let's try to work out some some stuff here so presentism is an idea in history and i have not planned this at all so you know whatevs uh where you apply your current morality worldview um cultural biases to to and you use it to judge the actions of people in the past. So noun presentism, uncritical adherence to present day attitudes, especially the tendency to interpret past events in terms of modern values or concepts. That is a better way to do it. So this idea that uh, you know constant. Now I'm not saying this is a good or a bad thing. Although uh, yeah, so this is just the best example that I can. I can think of uh, for the past probably half a century now, it's been in vogue to criticize the founding fathers because the American uh, because the Revolutionary War was not an economic revolution. So, you know, they uh, they um, well, because but it was it was I'm not an it, it was not an economic overhaul. If if you will, or, you know, it's just a bunch of a bunch of white guys angry about having to, you know, pay more taxes. And just trying, you know, and that's not the case, but you have to, so different things um, like that. Or I think this whole um, 1619 pro, um, project that's going on at the New York Times. Oh, yeah. 
I think it brings up some very interesting points, and I think it's a absolutely a, a conversation worth having. But they were trying to. There was this one article where they were talking about how the American Revolutionary War was a, was about slavery, and it's just there were all these historians who are like, no, you you can't. That's not <laughs> like like there's just. I mean, it, sure, it is a part of the story, but it has nothing to do with this, and you, you can't like you did like that's just blatantly not. Uh, truce. So there's a really good example of that. So you could say that presentism is like, uh, so it's anach- an anachronism applied almost like as like an approach, right? Like, you know, like when you say, oh, that's very anachronistic, right? You mean a cron, cron meaning time, a meaning not having to do with time. You take a concept today and you throw it back in the past. And it's like, no, that's anachronistic. Or you bring a past concept into the present, you treat it the same. Yeah. Whereas mm-hmm. it's kind of like it's it's like a way of doing uh, literary, you know, history analysis stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just and so I'm reading this book on John D. Rockefeller called Titan. Well, according to Joey Ruth, I can't say that I'm reading it because it's an because it's an audiobook, and that's fine. So uh, I understand. <laughs> I understand those rules, and I'm gonna I'm going to adhere to that. So even though it's you know it's it is like a thirty hour I'm listening through, but whatever. So um, <laughs> I have one in the queue. My thirty one hour is uh, uh, "Democracy in America" by Alexi de Tocqueville. Oh, there you go. There you go. That's like that. That's a good one. That's a big deal. Yeah. Well, he's a patron. Look saint at of, you. He's a patron saint of communitarians, and I have a buddy who's a communitarian. So. Wait, he's a saint? No, 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 no. Sorry, like he's like the guy that everyone goes to. Oh, Democracy yeah, yeah, in America oh, yeah. is like it's a huge deal. It's yeah. a big, big book. That's very important. Yeah, I love it. I mean, I've read a bunch of it. But yeah, anyhow, a lot of our idea of like what America is and like the American spirit, the Ameri- like comes from that. Yeah. So that's awesome. Okay, so Titan's a book. I believe it was written in the mid um, in the in in the mid nineties. I think I believe it's supposed to be like the Rockefeller biography and so it's um and it is fascinating and so for those of you guys who don't know who john d um rockefeller is uh one shame on you pay attention to your american history class two uh he basically created standard oil which was the oil trust and monopoly that basically controlled um 90 percent of all oil production here here in the states for about like 40 years and during, during the late um 19th century and early, very i believe it was broken up in 1911 became all these they basically like so they they, they owned all like all of oil and so he's criticized a ton for what like his uh, his uh, his approach and how you know like that's wrong and how huge and he was just like he was it was you know greed on acid but when you hear now i think he was a greedy person i think he had that there like it's there but this was a guy who really loved God and was really trying to be. And he was a Baptist. He was against. Um, he was against alcohol and cards and dancing and all the stuff that I think is fun. So I think he had an unhealthy, which you could say in this like is like presentism. But he created Standard Oil because he thought that the way oil was was working was going to destroy the economy. Like he knew exactly what he was doing. He actually thought that. Competition was bad because, uh, like what you ha- what you really had going on there was all of these. So, like people would get capital bank loans to go into the oil business out in you know parts of Pennsylvania, Ohio, 
other like you know like other like areas. And so the price of oil had this constant boom bust thing going on where it would you know drop down to like half to you know like at the end of the day it would drop to half of um what it was worth before. And what you and instead you would think that because demand would go down, then supply would then decrease. But that actually didn't happen. And why and like why that happened was because people were too much in they were too much in debt to go in to go into oil. They felt like they had to they felt like they had to stay. And the a the whole um the whole temptation to get rich quick they just couldn't they just couldn't resist so people kept going into this industry even though demand would drop to these catastrophically like low levels so you would have people where quite like quite like literally overnight they would gain a fortune i mean a like huge huge amounts of money and then they could also it would all just Go away. And he thought for the good of humanity, he needed to build a trust because he saw that the whole um, system was like screwed up and that, you know, competition was going to destroy everyone and everything. It's like this isn't good. And so he tries to bring it under his control because he felt like once you had um, that, you would actually be able to stabilize oil. So he actually um, saw it as a way to um, sanctify the temporal order. What like like what he he fully thought it was a thing that God uh, um, wanted him to do, and he was doing out of divine providence. And it's not this like greedy um lust for power. He just wanted um, more, more, more. Now I'm sure like that like that was there, but for his entire so he starts that in his early 30s, and throughout his entire life he always maintained I did this because we we oh, I wanted to for like. It was like for the um, betterment of our of like our society because like the um, whole like alternative was just the collapse of the economy. You had like a huge depression in the early part of the in the early part of the 1870s that was actually worse than the than the Great Depression and all this other stuff. And I bring it up because he's a guy that a ton of people point towards when they when they tend to think of greed gone bad. He was called the most hated man in America. Yet the New York Times described him as the world's greatest giver. He was America's first billionaire, and he gave half of it away. He was the quintessential so-called robber baron of the Gilded Age. But he was probably more responsible than any other single individual for the creation of the American middle class and the development of America as a great industrial power. He lived in a splendid mansion, but was so worried about spoiling his children that he dressed them in hand-me-down clothes. Song lyrics were written about him, but he rarely went to social events. His name was John D. Rockefeller, and his story is uniquely American. And I don't know if you can really do that because when you look at what he was saying and why he did why he did what he did and how he used like the crazy part is his family now they're one of the few they're one of like probably the only on the family of that time period that one is actually still around two they all didn't go nuts and they like do tons of great stuff. They're still one of like they give away so I mean billions of dollars every year. They do huge philanthropy um, work, and they've been doing it for almost 200 years now. That's not true. Almost about, 100, about 150 years now. Rockefeller was an oddity. The first billionaire in U.S. history, 
but no one could outgive him. From the time of his first job, earning 50 cents a day, the 16-year-old Rockefeller gave to his local Baptist church, to missions in New York City, and to the poor, black or white. He believed in the biblical admonition that not money, but the love of money, was the root of all evil. Rockefeller supported churches and missionaries all over the world, lavishly endowed colleges like the University of Chicago and Spelman College, a black woman's college named after his wife, Laura. And he gave millions to medical research. Before he died in 1937, in his 98th year, he had given away about $550 million which was more than any other American had ever possessed. So, if he did so much good during his life, why is he most commonly remembered today as the paradigm of a greedy capitalist? The answer to that question, I'm afraid, has much more to do with our educational system than with Rockefeller himself. Maybe it's time to take a fresh look at both. I'm Bert Folsom, professor of history at Hillsdale College, for Prager University. Now, I'm not trying to say that I agree with what he did with with Standard Oil, but I am saying that you know it's and no one's out there criticizing John D. Rockefeller. I'm right now. I I, I like have a greater point, and but my point is that um, most people would say, "Oh, this is an example of you know the business guy gone bad," and I actually don't know if I agree with that. Right. I'm not saying that I agree with like with, you know, I'm like what he did, but I, I agree with his motives. I think I just don't agree with like the, um, the choices that he, that he made because of that. And I think that's really important because it's kind of changed how I look at him and, you know, how now I'm only halfway through this book. So I'm sure there could be a lot of hor- like horrible stuff that you know, like he did. And, and he did things that I would that I would not agree with at all. But I think it's very important instead of trying to. Like judge the past by your current worldview to take the time to understand what was actually going on and what were like like what the people of the time say, what were their you know own motivations, what did they think like what did they think they were trying to do how did like you know once time had moved on how did they how did they uh, how did they like reflect back on that and you know blah 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 interesting I bring this up. Because it's very common now for us to crap on the church right after post um, Vatican II. We do it a lot, justifiably so in, you know, a lot of ways. But I think it's really important to, um, and I, I, I don't, I don't want to name names here, but I've just, one of the things I'm really glad about kind of getting out of my diocesan umlaw work is I've been able to like work with, and I've been able to work and talk with people whose experience of the church has just been like, it hasn't been my, um, you know, cause for the most part we're of like a, this Steubenville on life team bubble. Yeah. And it's a wonderful bubble. Like it is awesome. Like it's, I think it's a great thing. It's a good thing. They're like, I think it's one of the best things to come out of the, if not the best thing to come out of the American church of the you know past hundred years. I think it's so good what that school has done and what the people who have come out of that school have been able to go and do. I think it is, but there is this tendency to crap on the past 
because they're not as smart as we are today. Yeah, you know, or and they don't hold the like orthodox views that you know, like like we have. And I, I just think if you don't take the time to understand why they think that, or t- like it's easy to say that people like don't believe in Christ because they don't ag- agree with you know uh, church doctrine. Like, have you taken the time to talk with them? Have you taken the time to hear them? Or you know, like I just it's really like. It has been challenging me for the past couple of past couple of months now. It's some really good, you know. And, and there are times when I do hear stuff, and I'm like, "What the hell?" <laughs> um, but like when I think of these people's faith and like how their faith is just such like a witness to me, it's actually really because it's very easy to think that the Catholic faith looks like this. Yeah, and. If you don't take the I'm, – I'm, I, I, I'm not even trying to say, like, be in dialogue and all the stuff that really, like, you know, has, has, has no meaning. I'm saying if you don't actually take time to understand, which is, which is a really big Catholic thing to, you know, dwell, dwell, dwell in reality, you know, we really do place an emphasis on wisdom. And I think – Within this whole this like whole movement of the church right now, that I don't for I'm going to call it the rad trad the rad trad movement or whatever. There's a real um, lack of wisdom within certain aspects of this because I don't think they're actually taking the time to understand what is really going on. They're paying attention a lot to the accidents. And the things that they see that they don't like, as opposed to you know, and, and there's stuff worth like it's. I am I, not trying to say that like everything that the American Church has done post post um, Vatican II was actually good. <laughs> I'm just saying, don't be trapped by on um, this idea that because it doesn't fit what you, where you think the church should be um, right now, like doesn't mean that it was bad either. I, I, that was a very long thing, so I'm going to stop right <laughs> give you a, some room to chew on that. Well, in case anyone cares, all the stuff that Luke said is in the show notes, including the fact that uh, Audible.com, if you have a – are you an Audible subscriber? Yeah. Yeah, they're doing uh, – Titan is one of their books, and they're two for one. Um, I don't know when the sale ends. It's like February 19th or something, so maybe you won't get this, but – um, so I just want to say that I, when it comes to presentism, that I feel like presentism is what's destroying history, the important lessons of history for us, because you have people who don't understand the past. And so they just rage against it. And we've talked about that before. Like we have, I think, I think it's stupid to try to interpret the past in light of today and to interpret today strictly in light of the past, because there's too much, um, there's too much differences in what we think and how we go and who we are and all these things. Um, and, you know, pulling out of my uh, butt cheeks, the old Alistair McIntyre, his whole, the whole reason why he's a famous American philosopher is because he holds that even though we use the same words, they're tied to completely different moral schemes, moral systems, moral philosophies. And so we're saying the same words, but we're talking right past each other because they mean different things. And so it's, it's the the anachronism is even further compounded by cultural biases, uh, biases and all that stuff. There was this um, a woman who is is somewhat famous in academic circles for her staunch 
cultural relativism. So she believes, you know, there is no such thing as morality. It's all culturally dependent what works and what doesn't. And uh, and yet when she she I think she does work for the UN. I might be wrong in that. She does some international um, governmental you know um, governmental charity work type stuff. And it's funny because she is adamant in like she's denied aid to people who don't. I wish I could remember her name. Who don't conform to her modern feminism? And they and people will say to her, "But you're a freaking." moral cultural moral relativist like why are you feeling and she said well i just think mine's better they're like but you're a relativist that means there is no better she's like i know but it's still mine and i want that to be the way that all women experience life you know not just you know in my country And it's like but what are the rational grounds there are no rational grounds this is an emotional thing i want it this way and you're like huh so that's where that's where this uh, this kind of goes. It's just it's the the morality of emotions. Um, so I, I don't know. It's just funny because uh, what you're saying is, I mean, we see this all the time when they crap on the founding fathers of America. Yeah, slavery is the original sin of America, but you know, so is British tyranny over the colonies, and I think that's important. And I think you can't just shit on the one because you don't like the other. Yeah, and I I just like there's a um. The hard part is, is like what you do actually is like when you do this stuff, you really lose out on understanding the good. Yeah. You know, and I, uh, so, okay. So for example, I read this great wall street journal article the other day about how comparing the, uh, I'm going to mispronounce this. So I apologize. The, uh, coronavirus, whatever it's called. Um, yeah. Coronavirus. Yes. The coronavirus. Comparing how the Chinese handled that to the Cher- to the Chernobyl, oh, that's cool disaster, and just how when you how when you have like a tyrannical government, um, what are the limitations of that when it comes to handling a type of a, a type of disaster? And so what that actually, and it was really interesting, and it, and it made me think about like, I wish more, I wish people would read that because it's because and so this other audiobook that I've listened to that I'm actually just got done with is called Midnight in Chernobyl. And you really see how the whole um Russian system how it led to this. Like like this was bound to happen because of the way that um Russia ran their society and they um and they um ran their government and all this stuff. This was bound to like it just it was not a direct cause, but it was like the cause. If that makes sense. And I think a lot about Bernie Sanders. There are some things that he's about that I really like. I don't think anyone should go bankrupt because of health care. Yeah. Ever. Um, I think health care, um, the church says that health care is a human right. So how can you go bankrupt? Or how sh- in, like a, in you know, a society unlike ours, how could you go bankrupt over a human right? You know. But anyways, my point being, like, what scares me about him is how. How do you bring about what he wants? It's only through... Like what some people would define as you have to like have a ter- like tyrannical as- aspects to your government. And, and we and we might already be there. And like it's just this whole like we need to think about like what are like all of the systems that we want. What does it take to have them there? So if you want to pay for all this stuff, you want to have all of these things happen. Well, that means that like you, you need to force like you're going to have to force stuff to happen. You're going to have to limit others like freedom. And what does and like what it, does that actually look like? Yeah. 
I know I'm not trying to say that like you know he's going to lead to a you know communist government. Although am I? What I'm saying is like what does like what does that actually what does it actually look like? Because the thing that scares me about him is he's the left. He's very very far left to the point where he says to be pro-choice is to be easy. If to be a Democrat, you have to be pro-choice, and that's really scary. That's really. I mean, I still fear a more in a different. Uh, pro-life group that just doesn't view pro like pro-life in all aspects. Uh, but that's like that's pretty that's pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah, I literally brought that up in our in my um, oh uh, RCIA class today. I said, "Listen, here's the deal: you have now finished the course on the foundations of Catholic morality, and you're going to go into the specific applications of the Ten Commandments and how it affects our lives." You will read things in the catechism that'll make you say, I don't want this to be true. I don't want to believe this. I said, and you'll find things that you'll be like, oh, yeah, totally. Heck, yeah. More so. More of that. I said, if you're on the right, you'll love what the church says about abortion and euthanasia. And if you're on the left, you'll hate it. Or there are chances that you'll hate it, right? And then if you're on the left, you'll love what the church says about just war and about uh, protecting the immigration, you know, um, migrant populations. You'll love what it says about the death penalty. But if you're on the right, you might not think that. And I said, this is the deal. We're all raised in this environment. We all are. And so we need to understand how to go forward in the middle of this environment because you are following the way of the Lord Jesus Christ, not a Christian version of a Republican, a Christian version of a Democrat. You can't do that. And you and I, uh, you know, we tried, I mean, we definitely think we know it all and we get really mad at people who act like know-it-alls, even though you and I do that plenty of times. Um, But at the core of it is I firmly believe that my, that following Christ cannot be summarized by the Republican Party or the Democrat Party. And most of the people who are the most pro-Republican or Democrat Catholics would probably agree with that statement. But um, so I told him, I said, you are going to chafe at these things and you should because Christ is calling you to a new way of life. Now, some of that stuff in our life is informed already. And a post-Christian culture means there's elements of this already in our culture. But at the same time, some of that stuff is going to make you get angry. I said, and that's good. That's good. That means you're taking it seriously. Yeah. It's much easier to... uh do what Balthasar calls the aesthetic theological and try to like view the church coming from like, and I'm, I'm probably screwing all this up. So I apologize to all of the Balthasar experts who are out there, all three of you. Uh, if I may read just a, a, a brief text here from uh, Cardinal Rot, uh, Ratzinger, um, specifically in talking about the beauty of Christ. He says, being struck and overcome by the beauty of Christ is a more real, more profound knowledge than mere rational deduction. Of course, we must not underrate, underrate the importance of theological reflection, of exact and precise theological thought. It remains absolutely necessary, but to move from here to disdain or to reject the impact produced by the response of the heart in the encounter with beauty as a true form of knowledge would impoverish us and dry up our faith in our theology. We, meet, we must rediscover this form of knowledge. It is a pressing need of our time. Uh, starting with this concept, Hans Urs von Balthasar bit, built his opus magnum of theological aesthetics. Many of its details have passed into theological work, while his fundamental approach 
in truth, the essential element of the whole work has not been so readily accepted. And it continues on. Like my my own view of, of the church comes from my like it's like it is it's all like formed by me. Yeah, you know. So let's take how we go to how we uh, go to communion for. Example, I think it's best that we all receive on the hands or like I think it's best that that we all go up and like up and like kneel. And that's how it should be, because, the you know, as opposed to what does the church have to say? And I'm going to allow that to like then form what I think should happen. And the problem and I was I'm thinking about this today during mass. That's why the like an attitude of receptivity is so key when we're like when we're taking a look at the church and when we're um, reading her documents and when we are at mass and when we are praying and when we're, we're, you know, trying to understand who and what the church is, because that's, because I think any other, any other way you're going to try to make it something and you can't do that. It has, she had like, she's you you, like, as, as like a member of the church, you kind of, you have to, when we approach the church, we have to be more, receptive than um productive or trying to make stuff out of what we think how we think things should be and that's hard that's really 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 hard because a lot of church music really really sucks you know and so there's always this attitude of like how often do we go to, do we go to mass and we pay attention to like holy crap they're singing the, the like hallelujah like that gag me i'm with an effing spoon like this is Go full, awful. Full, full house. Gag me with a spoon. Yeah, just ugh. But are we paying attention to the words that are being said, to the prayer, you know, to what's actually going on? Now, I do think there does come a point where if, like, it pulls you out of it, you got to go to a different place because it just. Yeah, and I think that's that's going to be different for a lot of people. I mean, when you want to talk about the liturgy stuff, I think you could make. This is what the the trad side of the argument has on its side is. The church has a lot of very clear stuff, and we haven't been following it. Yeah, oh, totally, totally, totally. Right, and so when the people start arguing over this or that thing, you just say, okay, well, what does the church say about it? And then you read that the church has very clear things that it says about it, but no one does it. So then you have a clear thing here and a clear disobedience for decades here. And then you ask yourself, okay, well, what's the right way forward? And when you talk to some priests, uh, the number one sin of clergy members, I think, is uh, remaining unteachable after they graduate um, from seminary and are ordained. I've met so many priests and deacons who just are unteachable, like they don't want to learn. And so there's no conversion possible for people who are unteachable. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, you just find this like stubbornness, like, no, why, why, why would I care to learn? I already know everything you need to tell me about the liturgy. It's like, actually, you know very little. You, it was one class among 57. Like, you, you have a broad range of stuff. You got to do deep dives in this stuff. But the problem is with someone who the liturgy is like their thing, right? I think there's an element in the, in the rad track community where they fetishize the mass. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Yeah. Yep. Like, you have to do this and act this way and, you know, uh, Cardinal Burke doesn't wear enough fancy clothes. Not he's wearing too much. Like all this stuff, and it gets weird. It gets really weird and uncomfortable because and and they don't allow um, any type of local practice where it's even within the bonds of like the Tridentine Mass, 
They don't allow for any local practice. But that's how most of the traditions work their way into the Mass, was it was done this way locally, made its way up to the bishop. The bishop loved it, and then it made its way to Rome, and then Rome brought it into the liturgy. Like, they're all, I mean, there are dozens of stories about, you know, different aspects of the liturgy, the traditional liturgy, the modern liturgy, where that has that. But I will say, in the, with the Novus Ordo and all the stuff, like, it is scary how many things are so concrete and we don't follow them at all. Yeah, and, and, and like, that is what I mean of an example as the aesthetic theological. Yeah. It, um... Basically, like, so I uh, started to read uh, in Interior Castle. Oh, cool. And I am one chapter in, so I am enough of an expert to talk about it on a, on a <laughs> podcast. And she talks about the importance of charity and humility to see God working. Yeah. And, like, how that's going to help us understand what, what God is doing. And then especially, uh, and, she, and she's really talking about in the lives of others there, I think. And uh, and 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 in and in our own, and so often the way we approach this stuff, it's not charitable, nor is it nor and like that is not not in terms of like being kind, but wanting to will the good for the other. Like I want your good to ha- like. What's the most charitable thing I can do for you for like your goodness? So often when we want, like I, I just think about all of the crappy music that that we hear, how. Like how how often do we hear it because the music minister there just wants for the church to be nice or it doesn't want it to, to be the church of like their dad who was very mean to them. And so there's just this almost like I, have you heard the one uh, clip where they play the they play this one? Um, I think it is the Gloria and it's in the same key and cadence as a as a My Little Pony song. No, it's horrific. It's like so because it's just it's like it just you see how childish the Gloria is and why it's because it sounds like a flipping children's song from my, from um, my little pony. Was that on YouTube? Yeah, I was on, I think it was something like some um, Catholic um, radio show or something had it on their Facebook page. And like, that's it. That's the whole problem. And and it's, it's not that it's, it's, it's like what really bothers me. Here we go live right here. People. Right? Isn't it crazy? Maybe we found out that Dan Shute was actually a brony. Yeah, seriously. But what's so frustrating about this, like, did Dan Shute, did he write that piece because he wanted for the church to sound nice? And it's like, you're making it about you, and it's not about you. Like, you're lacking charity and humility. And it, um, not, I'm that's a little bit of like a harsh thing to say against him. So I don't know if that was, you know, but like that's, we're just so damn selfish. And that's like going back to like the whole like presentism thing. Like everything's always about what I want. That beauty has this extraordinary capacity to reach down into our very flesh and yet reach down into that flesh with a spiritual light. It, it has this marvelous capacity to bridge the gap. This is something that Plato saw. Me, me, me. You know, and it's like, this is the problem. This is the first sin, 
It's about me, and it's not. It screws up everything, man. <laughs> Very profound. I know. <laughs> Sorry, that's <laughs> yeah. I was real dumb. Very. <laughs> Very perfect. Sorry, I went to bro bro podcast mode there. And if you had never been to a Catholic Mass, you might think that with all of that context in mind, if that's true, it must be an incredibly powerful and epic moment. And the church expects us to believe that it is true, while simultaneously garnishing it with an artistic and cultural expression like this. The King of Glory comes, the nation rejoices. Open the gates before Him, lift up your voices. Who is this King of Glory? How shall we call Him? In an effort not to be myopic and make it all about me, can I tell you the book I'm reading? And I love it. Yes. And I will recommend it on this show, The Crucified Rabbi by Taylor Marshall. It's good. Taylor Marshall has like three books. They're all very similar in their covers, and they're somewhat apologetic, somewhat theology, somewhat you know whatever. And uh, it's, it's excellent. That, that the parts that I'm on, I was just read through the. Uh, they're not very long. I just read through the Jewish roots of baptism, and it was it was excellent. And as I'm reading it, um, I'm thinking of his podcast when he originally started it. And the description that a friend of ours screenshot and sent to us and with the caption, what happened? And the screenshot was of his own description of his podcast, which is like, I just want to give the hope of Jesus Christ and let everyone know that, you know, there is joy in following him and all this stuff. But then you watch the show and it is a commentary on, well, the, the very worst of, I think, I shouldn't say the very worst. There is much worse things than him getting angry at a bunch of people um, that don't think exactly like him. There are much worse stuff than that, hands down. Um, but there is oftentimes... The Nazis. <laughs> for example. Um, but there, there is this problem where it's easy to get a following by crapping on everything. And I, you have said you don't want to be that guy. It was about you know 10 or 12 episodes ago where we talked about that. But it's true. There comes a part where we can rally a bunch of people with our anger, with our two minutes hate, and they will, like, if, if we can get someone to get angry, they will stay with us. But we can actually do better for the church if we propose what the church wants us to propose. And when I'm reading The Crucified Rabbi, I'm like, this is the Taylor Marshall I want to go eat a steak with. And I was about to say drink beers, but I can't. Wait, can you not have beer on the... No, I, have, I drink nothing but... Water in the mornings, I'll have a little bit of coffee. Wait, so are you done with booze? Yeah. Like, forever? Well, I mean, for now. I might just do this ah. diet for 30 days. I might do it for all the Lent. I might do it for, you know, a year, whatever. I don't know. What? You're not going to drink for a year? I don't know. What are we going to do at, at our live shows? I'm not doing that sober. <laughs> <laughs> I know I should. You're on a vegan diet. Beer is vegan. A lot of you. I know. Uh, beer and well, I'm gonna have because I, I, it's not like I mean screw the ethics behind it. It's it isn't some like um moral um crusade or anything like that. <laughs> uh, cool. All right. Well, good luck editing that. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Like you really you really hit me with the presentism. It's all in the show notes. I'm just kidding. Hey, uh, you're an education major and a history major. Did you ever look at what John D. Rockefeller and all of their organizations were saying in the early 1900s about public education? Uh, uh, I don't remember. It's like blood curdling, terrifying. 
Is it probably very social Darwinism? A lot of eugenics. hundred percent. A lot of eugenics. And that's the origin oh, no. of all of our public schools in America. <laughs> is it all like the, is it like things like the black child no. has got to be held down? I mean, no, I'm sure like it is, but God. it's like the masses need to be, the masses need to be shaped for factory work and nothing more. Like they need to know how to aspire to nothing more than just this. Oh no. Yeah. Oh, yeah it's pretty gosh. brutal. It's pretty brutal. I want to take you back a few years again. Between 1896 and 1920, a small number of powerful industrialists, together with their private foundations, sponsored university administrators, house experts, and house politicians, spent more money on mass forced schooling than the government did. Indeed, Andrew Carnegie and John D. Rockefeller together spent more money than the government did on schooling between 1900 and 1920. If you want to know the motives of this project, you need only read the first public mission statement of Rockefeller's General Education Board that was printed in its first report to well-wishers issued in 1906. And I'm going to read you the first paragraph, and I guarantee you it's utterly unbelievable. And if you have children, this ought to be as chilling as anything you've heard recently. In our dreams, people yield themselves with perfect docility to our molding hands. The present education conventions of intellectual and character education fade from their minds, and unhampered by tradition, we work our own will upon a grateful and responsive fault. Can you believe people actually wrote this and printed it? We shall not try to make these people or any of their children into philosophers or men of learning or men of science. We have not to raise up from them authors, educators, poets, men of letters. We shall not search for artists, painters, musicians, lawyers, doctors, preachers, politicians, statesmen, of which we have an ample supply. The task is simple. We will organize children and teach them in a perfect way the things their fathers and mothers are doing in an imperfect way. And he's like, I am reading this. My publisher wouldn't publish my book because of these quotes. These quotes are at the J.D. Rockefeller Foundation. I have page number. I'm self-publishing this book because the publisher wouldn't touch it because they don't believe the quotes. But I literally went to the J.D. Rockefeller um, you know, whatever research place in Cleveland and the other one in New York. He's like, it's all available. It's all historical record. I'm not saying that the dude's a saint either. No, no, no. I'm just saying like... Try to understand the whole, yeah, no, well, and, and like, but that's also like, well, no, this is why trying to understand things is really important because you actually see why do we have a school system where you're like in at eight and you're out at three? Like, why does that exist? And every time you transition is when there's a huge bell that they use in factories. So, you know, like, yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Like, why is it that? Our, you know, schools in the past, no, okay, I'm, I'm going to act like your non-frontier schools, schools in, you know, urban cities were these beautiful, old, gore, like, gorgeous buildings, and then all of a sudden we turned them into, like, prisons. Yeah, concrete slabs where you were just in and, I mean, like, I don't know if you've been in any, like, real public school built in the last 80 years. It is a depressing place. That is as utilitarian as you get. Linoleum floors, concrete walls, all painted one color. <laughs> yeah, with all like the same uh, the same clock design from nineteen forty six. And like, like, how do you go from Oxford, that being the style of how people were educated, to uh, what we have now? I think the way you got there was because now it's mass education. 
You know, like they were, you know, a lot of people weren't educated in those buildings uh, when they were in first, second and third grade if they weren't rich. You know, but most people didn't go past third or fourth grade for the majority. Uh, you know, they learned how to read and write and do their numbers. But um, other than that, you know, if you went on to higher learning, chances are you were either incredibly academically gifted or you were incredibly wealthy or part of the upper class. There's a bit of that in in there, but there's also this aspect of uh, like if you read a lot of John uh, John Dewey stuff or. Um, What's the Rogers guy? Um, oh no, this uh, is like Francis Bacon. I think that is his name. Um, there is like this, like basically, it's the beginning of modernism, where it's this idea of um, look at what man can do. We can ask like science. So, like, look at the Dewey Decimal System. Yeah. Like how we classify books in such like a cold, hard, scientific manner. They were basically approaching education and the ed- formation of children as if they were science projects. Here's step one, step one A, step. I was actually I'm thinking about this like early today. How so? How so much education now is still just so methodical. It's so like here are your objectives. I'm trying to get to a point where I have eight or have eighty percent of you know of the kids here like understand objective uh to a point like point three and that counts as education now there is a thing there to be understood but it's so a mechanical that i think it it's a little bit of like a like a deforming as, aspect to that where you just become this cog in a bigger machine yeah what are you reading I'm trying to look at the quote and see if I can find it. And um, so there's a guy who now is a libertarian. He was at Cornell University of Pittsburgh, Yeshiva University, Hunter College, Reed College, University of California, Berkeley. He is now an educational activist. His name is John Taylor Gatto, G-A-T-T-O. And he, I think the story is like he was given... Uh, yeah, he was given Teacher of the Year Award and New York State of the Year. So he won, yeah, so New York City Teacher of the Year in 89, 90, 91, New York City of the Year in 91. In 91, he wrote a letter announcing his retirement entitled, I Quit, I Think, and then went on to the Wall Street Journal. And he said he no longer wished to make a living hurting kids. Uh, and he then began a public speaking and writing career attacking, um, ooh, he won the Alexei de Tocqueville Award for Excellence in Advancement of Educational Freedom. Free freedom, um, but his whole idea is that the way we do government schooling and private schooling that imitates government schooling is literally just meant to to factorize, standardize education, which is impossible. It is impossible to do it, and they kind of force you to do that to beat you down and conform you. How can you reduce history to a science? You can't. There's nothing scientific about it. You can't test things. You can't have control groups. You're just trying to understand. It's all about understanding what happened and why did things happen the way that they did. And when you try to um, make it science, you're, 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 you're trying to absolute the relative. You know, okay, so, like, let's just take, like, I think that a guy like John D. Rockefeller I understand what like that he really thought he was trying to like bring about like trying to reform the temporal order, and I think part of that came from like a 
good place. I don't think he did some really awful stuff. People can do both. And when you reduce when you reduce history to just being a science, you take away that that like you take away like almost a, a, a man's humanity. I mean, how many different things have you felt and experienced and believed in your first um, thirty eight years of life? Like how like how often has your mind changed? The things that you believed changed. I don't mean your faith. I just mean like. Yeah, like you like, were once in the Fox News. Now you're not. You were, you know, yeah. like you change. Yeah. <laughs> I'm eating carnivore for crying out loud. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. So what really grinds your your gears right now? Yeah, sure. Oh, there are a lot of things that grind my gears, Luke. That I'm not at liberty to discuss right now. <laughs> um, the the whole thing around money and ministry has caused me to take a another like step back and look at like if someone were to if all my records were to be exposed, would someone say, "Oh yeah, he's doing the right thing with his money"? So I began adding up all of my you know the orphanage we fund, the focus missionaries we support, and the church tithing that we do, and I thought we were giving a lot more than we were. And so I've had to reprioritize hmm. all of that stuff. So that really sucked because I didn't realize it was that bad. Oh, that's, yeah, it's always a weird gut check. Yeah, people always say, like, unless you see the number of how much you give, you just give emotionally, you're undergiving. And I'm like, nah, you're undergiving. Turns out I was undergiving. It happens. Yeah. I, um, we went to Bye Bye Baby last night to start our, uh, baby, uh, um, registry stuff. Oh, okay. It's getting real, man. It's getting real. How many months you got? Getting real. Uh, like four and a half. A little more than four and a half. More like four and three quarters. My daughter is doing her. Oh, God. Are, are you? I'm doing all right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just, it was good. So we had our first communion retreat with my beautiful yeah. daughter. And, uh, you know, she struggles with generalized anxiety disorder. And um, it might be more than that, which is really hard to hear. Um, but... She did so good at the retreat because you go in and you're you're there for three hours from one to four, and there's different things at different stages, and you rotate and you go and do different stuff. And at one point, she leaves me to be with the kids, and the adults go and get an adult talk, and she just was super nervous. So there was a time where it's like they did um, a few minutes of adoration, and so they brought all the kids forward, and thank God we had a friend that she knew um, sitting right in front of us that she went with that wet with that young woman. Um, it was awesome. Uh, but if it wasn't those things, like, it would have been, like, shut down city. But the sweetest thing. So they have you write a prayer. The little girls and, or little boys and girls write a prayer to Jesus about their first Holy Communion. And they say, you can even take it with you and put it in your pocket. And when you receive Holy Communion, go back in your pew and read the prayer. Like, basically, dear Jesus, I love you, but I am so nervous about receiving Holy Communion. Please help me. Please help me. And I'm like, <laughs> it broke. Yeah, it broke my heart when you showed it to me. I was like, oh. You know, it's things like that with parenthood that is so difficult because you don't know how to help someone that is so radically affected by something that's outside of their control, right? And generalized anxiety disorder is just that. She's not anxious about a thing. She's anxious about everything. So I, the way I told my daughter, I might have said this on the show before, the way I told my daughter was, uh, my, my oldest, who was frustrated with her one day, I said, listen, you're at a, f um, you're at a one and when you get really, really upset, you're at like a six. Cecilia lives at a four. 
right? Just all day. She's just a frayed nerve waiting to get set off. So the reason why, you know, one of the reasons why she's a book nerd, my daughter reads, I mean, she probably read a thousand pages in the last week. The reason why she's a book nerd, I think, is because it's very approved in my house for her to be a reader. So it's a socially acceptable way to remove herself from other people and just be, I'm in my room. I have my little canopy over my bed. I got my little light and I'm just with my book. And she's reading 400 page books that have no pictures. She's in second grade. She's at like a Holy sixth. Cow. She's at like a sixth grade reading level. What is she reading? Uh, so it was really funny. This woman at uh, one of the things. She goes, "Hey, Cecilia, do you remember my daughter?" And they're like, "She's like, yeah, hi, hi." You know, it's all awkward stuff. And she goes, "Cecilia's a big reader, like you. What, what, Cecilia? What are you reading?" And she goes, "The Complete Works of Jane Austen." <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! And I go, "Whoa, whoa, 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 whoa! Time out. The Usborne Books version of the Complete Works of Jane, not the actual works of Jane Austen." And she's like, "Yeah, not those." <laughs> but it's 800 pages or 600 pages. And she's just crushing it. And it's so funny. It's so funny. She's just totally like that. And she loves it. And I love that she loves it. But I think, like, that's part of it, right? She needs to unwind. And she knows that just walking away from crowds and being alone is what she needs to do. So she's an introvert on top of, you know, dealing with anxiety. You know, we all have anxiety in our life. We all have this weird-ass, low-grade, non-acute, always-present anxiety. And um, I, I want to minimize it. And we try to do that with homeschooling. But there's so many other things that happen in a day that even when you homeschool and can completely control your schedule, it's like, but seriously, put your shoes and socks on. We got to go to the doctor. We got to go get another retainer because, you know, my oldest daughter lost a retainer. Thank you. $250 thrown down the toilet. Um, so it's like all this stuff. And um, your kid, it, it's just so hard. Like, even when you try to control the environment and just make it as low anxiety as possible, it's impossible to do that perfectly. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the next one, uh, which goes along with sleep, would be stress management, uh, how you handle the stress in your life. Now, there's this common thing that gets repeated. We've probably said it on the show as well that, you know, today, today's day and age, we have a lot more stress in our lives. I don't think that's really fair. I think it's, it's not fair to – yeah, I don't think it's fair to past generations because let's be honest. Uh, <laughs> I've never dealt with a you know yeah. a plague. Uh, I've, right, right. I've never dealt with yeah. a, a world war. Yeah, but it's the type or, of stress. Right? Yes, it's, yeah. the, it's the type of stress. The type of stress that we, that we may have had in the past was acute. It was massive, and then it went away. And the truth is the acute type of stress back then – Fair, you know, if afraid for my life yeah. or survival stress probably actually helped. If anything, testosterone levels, and then the other type, the this low level constant stress, yes, is what I think is what's really hurting us, and that is what I think is it at normalized all time. it. That's what I think is at all time highs. Because I know you insult everybody who's sixty years old and older. Yeah, well, I, trust you. me, we were stressed out. Right, you know? it was yeah. way more stressful than well, different types of stress. Now we have this this type of stress that we don't count as stress, but it really is. It is, and so. You don't know what's going to happen. And when it happens, it's kind of crazy and it's kind of scary or it's kind of heartbreaking, you know, where they say things like I'm worthless and I shouldn't be alive and my family would be happier if I wasn't around. And now you're racking up psychiatry bills because you just want to understand why would your kid who's happy, you know, 90% of the time say that, you know, and then what, what am I doing as a parent that's causing that? What, how do you, how do you and Shannon get through, like, how do you as people and as a couple handle that? Poorly. So like not like um what you do for her, yeah. but like 
what do you do like like on your own and then like with or for each other yeah i think me and Shannon are blessed that we are both former youth ministers and stuff that we are very talkative and we talk this stuff out and Shannon takes it much deeper um you know she feels like Cecilia always feels that way i think she only feels that way when she's at like a 10 you know what i mean like that when i'm when i reach this level then all is lost and you know and you know that kind of despairing thing i don't think she has that in her all the time but i could be wrong and it's terrifying if i'm wrong if i'm wrong and shannon's right then she thinks in her head all day long except it's quieter when she's you know in chill mode i my family would be better off without me which is like a lie from the pits of hell, obviously, but it it shreds you. It shreds you. And so what can you do? You talk it out. You come up with strategies. You, you know, she's in counseling. Um, we talk it through. We do our reading. I mean, we do all the, all the stuff that they say to do to read and manage expectations. The number one thing you can do with her. Like if you say we're going to go to the park later and then something comes up and you can't go to the park – why aren't we at the park? Why can't we go to the park? I want to go to the park. You said we go to the park. You know, and she's just like screaming and crying or all this stuff. And it's like, I'm not, I'm not attacking you. Just things change. So you have to manage her expectations. It's so hard. It's so hard. How do you do that? Like, do you just say like, like we are going to go to the park, but this could happen. This could happen. This could happen. Or like, like yeah, how do you, I mean, like, so what does that look in, like? In so far as possible, you you try to preference it. Now we're going to go to the park, but only if you get your room clean. You do this, you do this, and the moment there's a deviation, whoa, whoa, whoa! We said you had to have your room clean, but I want to go to the park right now. You know, like all little kids are like all about me, me, me right now. Yeah, now. yeah, yeah, yeah. And but with her, it's like she knows every word that we say, and if there's a like a promise attached, and you're not allowed to break your promises with her. So if you say something like, you know, you know, after dinner, if you guys are good, we'll go to the park. And then it's like, oh, that took too long. Dinner took too long. We can't get to the park now. I mean, it's World War III. So you, ha- I mean, you just have to work it through. And sometimes I have to, like, get loud in order to get her, because she's on a loop, right? Her brain is just cycling in this circle. But you said, but you said, but you said, but you said. And then I'm like, stop, stop. Take a deep breath. Hear yourself. You're just saying the same thing over and over again. I know what I said, but life intervened. I can't change the universe. You know, things like that. And um, I'm sure I'm damaging her irreparably, <laughs> irreparably, irreparably. Irre- well, the good thing about, I think we talked about this before, either on the podcast or just uh, as friends. Uh, the good news is that if Bernie wins, it'll be free. <laughs> so that's a plus. Yeah. Yeah. Instead, we go to Catholic uh, counselors who are not on insurance. That's tough. It is tough when you don't pay $25, but much more than that for every single visit. See, that's one thing that was actually brought up during our our interview with Everett, and I forget her name, I, uh, Kelsey Skoke. Yeah, I I actually don't agree that you sh- I, I Like, if it's easier for you guys to go to a non-Catholic counselor, like, what's... And if, and if they understand your values. Uh, you know, I'm 100% in agreement with you. We are, um, I mean, you go to the best, most competent person. Now, I think their perspective was most counselors would not see pornography as 
a moral issue. Yeah, yeah, sure. So no, that's, that's why that, they would say fair. that. That's fair. And and that is why I didn't like yeah. try to like push that because I'm like I I, I understand. Right. But I would say uh, so. We oh, the psychiatrist that we go to isn't in, in network, but they're not a Christian psych. I mean, they might be Christian. I don't know. But oh, okay, okay. That my daughter. Here's the deal. We went to the one that cost me thirty dollars as a copay. And yeah. my daughter didn't say a single word. She was in a ball, sobbing hysterically in my armpit the whole time, trying to hide from the people. And when she went with Shannon, so it was both of us, and I couldn't go to this new place. So when she went with Shannon to the new place, um, the whole place, like the, the first place felt like a cold doctor's office. Gray walls, gray floors, gray chairs, everyone just sitting around staring at each other, trying not to make eye contact. But with... Uh, with um, the new place, it was toys on the floor, big place to run around and jump, bright colors. It was fun. She found Engaging. Yeah, yeah. And she found some toys that she wanted to play with. And then their offices are the same. So the psychiatrist asked Shannon to leave, and then she laid down on the floor with Cecilia and talked with her for 10 minutes on the ground while Cecilia's playing a game. You know, so the thing. That's fair. No, yeah. But the difference is one's in network, the other one's not in network. So one costs forty dollars, the other one costs three hundred dollars, or whatever. It is. I don't know the exact price, but it's like that. You yeah, know? yeah, it's it's a, yeah, it's the equivalent yeah. of ten times more expensive. So you have to ask yourself, like, is my child worth it? The answer is yes. Then the follow up question is, holy shit, I have to book more gigs. Right, like that's how I view. Like Dave Van Vickle said that about his kids. You know, he said I don't view it as the um, how much money I make in these side gigs as like, oh, I made you know, $1,500 a day. He said, I, I'm, oh, I made $1,500. Great. I made five, you know, treatments for my son. Yeah. Like yeah. that's how he views things. And, you know, it's, it's funny. Like I don't entirely, entirely do that, but um, more and more it's starting to happen. Like, okay, so braces and speech therapy for my son and uh, braces for my eldest. And, you know, like, uh, counseling for my middle child and you're just going down the list and I look at Thomas and he's a freaking sociopath so I'm like oh my god the things we're going to have to pay for for you it's really just <laughs> going to be like insurance payments for uh, the yeah. damage he causes in like the walls of, of people's houses and stuff he's so full energy I love that kid he's the funniest I mean they're all so funny and high energy but Thomas just takes a cake my son Noah has a six pack how uh, One, he's your son. How? I know. Two, he's so young. Yeah, he, I don't know. He does gymnastics, and when he's at gymnastics, he just does, goes one day a week. And then when he's doing his stuff, I'm like, wow, he's strong. He's the smallest one. He's the youngest one in the group. They basically put him in that group because then we could get all four of our kids at the same one-hour time block. And the crazy thing is, like, he'll take his shirt off. That's, like, his new thing. He loves being outside with his shirt off. He'll take his shirt off. I'm like, damn, boy, you got six-pack. It's the funniest thing. That's some, oh, good for him. How old is he? Uh, six. Six? He's got a, a six-pack. Yeah. One for every huh. year, pa. <laughs> Hit that. Punch that. Come on. <laughs> Give me a best <laughs> shot, fatty. <laughs> oh, look at all them things oh. jiggle when you hit me. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing jiggling here. I'm at 4% body fat. <laughs> See Carter that? Moore. This is called a man. <laughs> you, you are so dad. I, you a little bitch. <laughs> Who's my bitch? That's you, dad. That's right. Give me a beer. What? You heard me. <laughs> he just grabs one of Shannon's Budweiser's, just like shotguns it. <laughs> Bud Light seltzers. <laughs> He's like, St. Louis. <laughs> 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 
Oh, that saddens me because I just had to dump out three beers that we had in our house. I know. I know. Uh, I was going to ask you something. Like, oh, are, are the kids doing the carnivore diet then? No, no. They're eating. I mean, like most of the stuff we eat is like organic crap. Yeah. Uh, kid food. You know, when we prepare meals, it's meat and meat and a veggie or, you know, a protein, a veggie and a fruit. Starch or something. Fruit. Yeah. My kids love fruit. And then after they've done that, then they can get a fruit snack or chips or whatever. And I just told my wife, I was like, you know what? Like. I just don't want to do that anymore with the kids. I want to get rid of all the crappy snack food. And she's like, okay, I'm, I'm with you. So she threw out all the chips yesterday. And once we finish all the stuff, that, the other stuff. And they're all like the organic stuff. Like I don't feel terrible giving it to them. But like my daughter Cecilia has so many um, autoimmune issues. Like she's allergic to like the four major brands of apples like Granny Smith and Fuji. But she's not allergic yeah. to, like, these, you know, pink ladies, which I'd never heard of. And so she, the signs of, like, if you have an apple allergy and not even an allergy to all apples, that could be a sign of certain immune issues. And she has a handful of allergies, like, outside, like allergic to grass, allergic to tree bark, you know, things like that. Most of the time that doesn't affect her. But, um, you know, I would think that if I could get her to eat a cleaner diet, then by cleaner, I mean redder. Red meat, baby. Red meat. Get her some salami, pastrami, those little like $6 things you can get over at uh, Trader Joe's. <laughs> oh, 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 I have, okay, sorry. I, 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 I would much, I would be much more um, willing to keep t- talking about your kids. But just so you know, I do have an instance of things that happens of our uh, continuing segment here on Catching Foxes called Luke Moves Back to His Hometown. Ah, everyone's favorite corner. Let me, <laughs> let me get some more water and then we can talk. Deal. I, I'm going to as well. It smells bad up here because I've been farting. Are you ready to hear about uh, Luke moves back to his home, his hometown? Luke moves back to his hometown. Wonderful, awkward, nostalgic things that happens when Luke goes back to Dayton, Ohio. This is when I wish that we could play my school's up fight song in here. Do you? What do you? Okay, really, really quick, and like just like a couple of words or a couple of of um sentences. What do you know about my? High school conversion, or how I like to explain it, like when I experienced a deeper c- conversion in high school. Okay, sorry, I was reading something. What? <laughs> I knew it, you son of a bitch! <laughs> you uh, quit your football team. Okay. Yep. And then what happened uh, the when I quit team my football team you for doing that? Yeah, especially who the coach. Yes. So the, this this coach, he was my eighth grade math teacher because I was at a of seven through twelve school. I love this man. Uh, you know, when I quit, he just never really spoke to me again. Passed in the hallway, wouldn't um, look at me, wouldn't Wouldn't say even anything. make eye contact with you. Yeah, yeah. Only real time he ever spoke to me after that was one time I had to bag like a thing he bought at the store. And he was like, hey, Luke. And I was like, you don't want to do this because you have to. So, um, you know, we're, we had an Oscar party at uh, here last week, which was very fun. And I'm going to the store to buy some stuff for it really, really quick. And I'm, and I'm like, and the store is packed. And I'm starting to walk, and he walks right past me. And I 
honestly had a little bit of a. Uh, you are reading again, nope. aren't, aren't you? Nope. I can see on your screen. Nope. You're looking at something. I see the reflection in the TV. Nope. <laughs> You're full of shit. I can see the TV. A big white thing. <laughs> I clicked the link on accident. Okay. Can you blame I can me? I can see your eyes. I can see the reflection. Well, take it off my glasses and cover the TV for the future. Wait, wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. There's this awesome mode. Let me see if I can do it. Blur my background. <laughs> it looks so weird when people do that. Like at times when we interview, they'll they'll have them. Like it just looks weird, everyone. All right. So I haven't seen this dude in, I mean, twenty years. Yeah. Let's say for all intents and purposes. And I'm so excited. I'm just trying to I'm run some errands. Because we're having a huge Oscar party. I was like, crap, I need to go and get on this, this, and this. So I go there, and I'm like, like I see him. And I'm like, shit, I can't. I'm like, my, I actually like. <laughs> I can't process I tense. <laughs> I can No, I'm like, I don't have time to deal with this. And he's got a little fatter. He's gotten a little bit older. He's, his hair is like all gray. It's uh, kind of like thinning. Uh, but it, I mean, it, I it was. I mean, I am a thousand percent convinced that it was him. He didn't recognize me. Just, I'm, he just, you know, kept walking, and that's all I could think of. <laughs> to the point where I almost wanted to keep um, shopping just so I could maybe try to like see him again, and like you know, <laughs> but I was like, no, I need to get this stuff. I gotta go. We we have an Oscar party to plan, but it sucks, man. I don't want to deal with that. No. no, you do not. I don't want to deal with this at all. Like. I'm sure I have some issues with this that I really need to work through. And it's not like he did the worst thing ever. I just think he was a douchebag. And he was doing his late he was in his late twenties. Like he probably would handle it a lot of different as, you know, an older adult than he did then. How you were in eighth grade at the time? No. No, no, no. I mean he was my oh, eighth right, grade right. Um, teacher. Right. I was I was uh Sixteen, yeah. So, so to write a little bit of back back story, I was supposed to start on the offensive line that year, and then I quit. And then he convinced all like my friends on the team to try to get me to come back on the team. So I came back. I was doing great. I was in the best shape I'd ever. I was like killing it. I was. I remember I'm walking around at night. The night before, I was uh, and I was I'm listening to these I'm Christian rock bands, just being like, like I think I need to quit. I think God, I, I think God wants me to quit. And I talked to my dad about it, and I quit. And so I went, and, and I didn't handle it well. I just went in the locker room, and I like just left my stuff, and then I left. Well, wow. <laughs> like yeah. I just left. I, I just I went home and I went to bed, and then no, no. So there's a I you know I. I could have handled it a lot better, but I was also like 16, and I was very scared, and I didn't really know what I was going I was going through a conversion at times that's very painful and awkward and weird. And I just thought, in hindsight, as an adult who deals with, uh, with all the stuff now and who talks about it a ton, that perhaps the other adults involved could have handled it a little bit better. <laughs> yeah, totally. Him being one of them. It totally. Totally. And... Because he used to he used to tell us like you know put God first if you are if you are a, a religious person I am so I encourage you to put because he always said that your priorities like I still remember all of this like it is ingrained in my brain your um, priorities are God your uh, um, own family school the team he's like there's no time for anything else outside of this it turns out so, I mean, your family is the team the school supports the team and God is the coach. <laughs> In most youth sports, that's how it goes. Yeah. And so when I saw him, I just like, honestly, it was kind of not traumatic. I'm not trying to, it's not like he abused me or, right. or anything. But there was, I like clenched up. I got real nervous. I almost wanted to run it to him again just to be like, 
do I say? Like it was, so, it was so weird. It was so weird. <laughs> I was like, no, I gotta go. You're 37. You have 30 people. We want to on, on that, it was have 21 years 20 ago to 25. <laughs> yeah, like it's just. I mean, and it's it's just, and that's the thing about a, a moving home that kind of sucks is sometimes you have moments like this that you don't like you psychologically cannot prepare for that you don't want to have that brings up old stuff and you just want to prepare for your Oscar party. <laughs> but instead you're having to like comfort 16 year old on the Luke doesn't understand why coach stone won't say hi to him after he like, after you work your ass off for him for two years, coach stone, shame on you, <laughs> shame on you for what you did to my Lukey. Shame. Shame. I would have Shame. to pick up the pieces two years later. <laughs> he was Shame. he was broken, Coach Shame. Stone, because of you. He's a kid, <laughs> damn it. Hug him. Give him a side hug and say, Lukey, I understand. Though I'm disappointed with your existence, I understand. <laughs> Think of how many people had to pick up those pieces. You, John, Adam, Maggie. Uh, a string of ex-girlfriends. A string, a string yeah. of potential girlfriends. <laughs> Random girls in the calf. <laughs> girls who just wanted to get through freshman orientation. <laughs> hey, you're cute. Can I tell you about my father wounds? <laughs> Shame. My kids are going to have like the old, like, they're going to be the old parent kid. Although it won't be as bad. That does make me kind of kind of nervous. Yeah. Yeah, like when I, when I'm fifty, uh, Evie will like be thirteen. Yeah, <laughs> when, it's not that bad, right? When you're fifty three and retiring from your postal service job, she will be uh, sixteen, and you'll be like, "Die, I'll give a shit. You just go do it." I just put on a soccer game and leave me. Alone. <laughs> the USA hasn't been back to the World Cup. Everything is pointless. I gave a lot of myself to that back in 2015. And she's like, I know, Dad. You talk about it all the time. Gosh. And then she'll leave. By the way, your podcast sucks. Whatever. Gorley likes it. He thinks I'm pretty. Paid for your house. Let's talk about college some more. I'm 53. <laughs> I haven't made any new memories. <laughs> Did I ever tell you about the time that uh, we did a lip sync to the Tanak Tanak song? Yes, Dad, I've seen the YouTube clip multiple times. I hear Uncle John in the background. It's not that funny. In fact, what you made your friend Adam do was kind of racist. Oh, it was funny at the time. In my day, you anachronistic, presentistic asshole. In my day, it was awesome. In my, in my day, if you had a friend who was half Pakistani, you could put a turban on him, have someone jump out with a ram horn, blow it, and he could come out with a cape and his turban, and people would cheer. <laughs> Thank God for Pakistani friends, am I right? <laughs> uh, you kids in your wokeness now that you've been with for the past 16 years, I don't want to hear about it. I, I won't stomach it. I won't. There's not enough to knock to knock tune going on in this culture. You kids with your fast cars and your VH2s. Get it. You, uh, we didn't have flying cars. Are you going to let your kids um, listen to the show? No. And you mean every need show about every day? <laughs> it's not safe for work, Luke. Not safe for car lines. But at some point in time, they're going to, you know, like, just, they're going to start to listen to their own podcast. They're going to grow up. And they're going to go, Daddy has a podcast. Mm -hmm. And they're going to listen. 
and they're gonna go, wait, what? <laughs> and like they're gonna understand what this was or is, depending upon how things pan out. He told me he was a Christian man. <laughs> it's my whole life alike. You ever think about that? Yeah. I think about it all the time now. I'm like, oh my gosh. Luke, I can't wait to see your evolving priorities. <laughs> yeah, because they change, man. You think like, oh, I'm married. Things are changing. And it's like, you're married to an adult who can feed themselves. You wait. You wait. I know. I'm so nervous. A glass can only spill what it contains, Luke. Oh, no. <laughs> I like, I actually, can I tell you like what our, like I have one goal. Here's my one goal. One goal. One desire. I'm going to fail at this. I'm going to, I know, and you're going to get really angry at me. And you're like, Luke, you're stupid. I don't ever want to yell at Evie. I don't ever want her to like see or hear me yell. Categorical impossibility. Go on. <laughs> I, I know. I know. Especially me. Just don't be a dick about it. I have been plenty of times. I regret it every time. <laughs> Everything they do. Thomas. Yeah, yeah, Thomas, don't do that. And then he does it twice right in front of you and then smiles at you. <laughs> he literally, like, don't pet the dog that way. He'll grab the dog's paw and yank it. And then I'll just <laughs> and then I'll just turn and smile at you like everything like, I do what? is to hurt you and the dog. <laughs> what? And to, and to make matters worse, I enjoy hurting the dog. <laughs> Father, did you hear him yelp? I heard him yelp, and my heart smiled. <laughs> Luke, did you see the new Batman teaser? No, uh, I'm not supposed to be on Twitter, but I did. <laughs> Luke swings and misses again. Exodus 90 is more like meh 90. <laughs> it is kind of pointless. I mean, as a trailer, it's just. Oh, t t but it shows you the tone that they're going for. Hopefully. Hopefully. Yeah. If they're smart about this, that's the tone of, of like, not like the color tone, but like you <laughs> yeah. just, it's the just vibe. red and faded. Like they kind of did that with the first um, Batman. What the first Batman? Holy crap! With um, the first image of Ben Affleck, it was just you tell yeah. it was like an older, very buff Batman, a lived Batman. I wish I want more Batfleck. Yeah, I would have been. I was the the problem with Batman versus Superman was not Ben Affleck as Batman. No, I thought it would have been very very cool to see Batman. 20 years into it. I was very intrigued. Yeah, I mean, by the that. fact that they jumped that far ahead, I thought that was fascinating. Like, because he, he, he had clearly had like one or two Robins. One had been killed by the Joker. Yeah. I was very intrigued by that. Yeah. That's not been, I, for once, it wasn't Ben Affleck's fault. <laughs> uh, unlike that damn football coach who wouldn't say hello to me, that oh, was totally gosh. Ben Affleck's fault. Isn't it weird that I was like, <laughs> it is, but it's funny. I love that. I had to, oh yeah, no, but like, it's one of those things where, like, I had to call my sister, and be like, so this happened. <laughs> I just need to tell you that this happened. Help me process.